Chapter Twenty Five of the Layer of the White Worm by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Twenty Five: The Last Battle. Lady Arabella had instructed her solicitors to hurry on with the conveyance of Diana's Grove, so no time was lost in letting Adam Salton have formal possession of the estate. After his interview with Sir Nathaniel, he had taken steps to begin putting his plan into action. In order to accumulate the necessary amount of fine sea-sand, he ordered the steward to prepare for an elaborate system of top-dressing all the grounds. A great heap of the sand, brought from bays of the Welsh coast, began to grow at the back of the grove. No one seemed to suspect that it was there for any purpose other than what had been given out. Lady Arabella, who alone could have guessed, was now so absorbed in her matrimonial pursuit of Edgar Caswell that she had neither time nor inclination for thought extraneous to this. She had not yet moved from the house, though she had formally handed over the estate. Adam put up a rough corrugated iron shed behind the grove, in which he stored his explosives, all being ready for his great attempt, whenever the time should come. He was now content to wait, and in order to pass the time, interested himself in other things, even in Caswell's great kite, which still flew from the high tower of Castra Regis. The mound of fine sand grew to proportions so vast as to puzzle the bailiffs and farmers round the brow. The hour of the intended cataclysm was approaching apace. Adam wished, but in vain, for an opportunity which would appear to be natural, of visiting Caswell in the turret of Castra Regis. At last, one morning, he met Lady Arabella moving towards the castle, so he took his courage à main, and asked to be allowed to accompany her. She was glad, for her own purposes, to comply with his wishes. So together they entered and found their way to the turret-room. Caswell was much surprised to see Adam come to his house, but lent himself to the task of seeming to be pleased. He played the host so well as to deceive even Adam. They all went out on the turret-roof, where he explained to his guests the mechanism for raising and lowering the kite, taking also the opportunity of testing the movements of the multitudes of birds, how they answered almost instantaneously to the lowering or raising of the kite. As Lady Arabella walked home with Adam from Castra Regis, she asked him if she might make a request. Permission having been accorded, she explained that before she finally left Diana's Grove, where she had lived so long, she had a desire to know the depth of the well-hole. Adam was really happy to meet her wishes, not for many sentiment, but because he wished to give some valid and ostensible reason for examining the passage of the worm, which would obviate any suspicion resulting from his being on the premises. He brought from London a Kelvin sounding apparatus, with a sufficient length of piano-wire for testing any probable depth. The wire passed easily over the running-wheel, and when this was once fixed over the hole, he was satisfied to wait till the most advantageous time for his final experiment. In the meantime, affairs had been going quietly at Mercy Farm. Lilla, of course, felt lonely in the absence of her cousin, but the even tenor of life went on for her, as for others. After the first shock of parting was over, things went back to their accustomed routine. In one respect, however, there was a marked difference. So long as home conditions had remained unchanged, Lilla was content to put ambition far from her, and to settle down to the life which had been hers as long as she could remember. But Mimi's marriage set her thinking. Naturally, she came to the conclusion that she too might have a mate. There was not for her much choice. There was little movement in the matrimonial direction at the farmhouse. She did not approve of the personality of Edgar Caswell, and his struggle with Mimi had frightened her. But he was unmistakably an excellent parti, much better than she could have any right to expect. This weighs much with a woman, and more particularly one of her class. So on the whole she was content to let things take their course, and to abide by the issue. As time went on, she had reason to believe that things did not point to happiness. She could not shut her eyes to certain disturbing facts, 
amongst which were the existence of Lady Arabella and her growing intimacy with Edgar Caswell. As well as his own cold and haughty nature, so little in accord with the ardour which is the foundation of a young maid's dreams of happiness. How things would, of necessity, alter if she were to marry, she was afraid to think. All told, the prospect was not happy for her, and she had a secret longing that something might occur to upset the order of things, as at present arranged. When Lilla received a note from Edgar Caswell asking if he might come to tea on the following afternoon, her heart sank within her. If it was only for her father's sake, she must not refuse him or show any disinclination which he might construe into inclivity. She missed Mimi more than she could say or even dared to think. Hitherto she had always looked to her cousin for sympathy, for understanding, for loyal support. Now she and all these things and a thousand others, gentle, reassuring, supporting, were gone. And instead there was a horrible aching void. For the whole afternoon and evening, and for the following forenoon, poor Lilla's loneliness grew to be a positive agony. For the first time she began to realize the sense of her loss, as though all the previous suffering had been merely a preparation. Everything she looked at, everything she remembered or thought of, became laden with poignant memory. And then on the top of all was a new sense of dread, the reaction from the sense of security which had surrounded her all her life to a never-quieted apprehension, was at times almost more than she could bear. It so filled her with fear that she had a haunting feeling that she would as soon die as live. However, whatever might be her own feelings, duty had to be done, and as she had been brought up to consider duty first, she braced herself to go through, to the very best of her ability, what was before her. Still, the severe and prolonged struggle for self-control told upon Lilla. She looked, as she felt, ill and weak. She was really in a nerveless and prostrate condition. With black circles round her eyes, pale even to her lips, and with an instinctive trembling, which she was quite unable to repress. It was for her a sad mischance that Mimi was away for her love would have seen through all obscuring causes, and have brought to light the girl's unhappy condition of health. Lilla was utterly unable to do anything to escape from the ordeal before her, but her cousin, with the experience of her former struggles with Mr. Caswell, and of the condition in which these left her, would have taken steps, even peremptory ones if necessary, to prevent a repetition. Edgar arrived punctually to the time appointed by himself, when Lilla through the great window saw him approaching the house, her condition of nervous upset was pitiable. She braced herself up, however, and managed to get through the interview in its preliminary stages without any perceptible change in her normal appearance and bearing. It had been to her an added terror that the black shadow of Ulanga, whom she dreaded, would follow hard on his master. A load was lifted from her mind when he did not make his usual stealthy approach. She had also feared, though in lesser degree, lest Lady Arabella should be present to make trouble for her as before. With a woman's natural forethought in a difficult position, she had provided the furnishing of the tea-table as a subtle indication of the social difference between her and her guest. She had chosen the implements of service, as well as all the provender set forth, of the humblest kind. Instead of arranging the silver teapot and china cups, she had set out an earthen teapot, such as was in common use in the farm kitchen. The same idea was carried out in the cups and saucers of thick homely delft, and in the cream jug of similar kind. The bread was of simple whole meal home-baked, the butter was good, since she had made it herself, while the preserves and honey came from her own garden. Her face beamed with satisfaction when the guest eyed the appointments with a supercilious glance. It was a shock to the poor girl herself, for she enjoyed offering to a guest the little hospitalities possible to her, but that had to be sacrificed with other pleasures. Caswell's face was more set and ironclad than ever. His piercing eyes seemed from the very beginning to look her through and through. Her heart quailed when she thought of what would follow of what would be the end, when this was only the beginning. 
as some protection though it could be only of a sentimental kind she brought from her own room the photographs of mimi of her grandfather and of adam salton whom by now she had grown to look on with reliance as a brother whom she could trust she kept the pictures near her heart to which her hand naturally strayed when her feelings of constraint distrust or fear became so poignant as to interfere with the calm which she felt was necessary to help her through the ordeal at first edgar coswell was courteous and polite even thoughtful but after a little while when he found her resistance to his domination grow he abandoned all forms of self-control and appeared in the same dominance as he had previously shown she was prepared however for this both by her former experience and the natural fighting instinct within her by this means as the minutes went on both developed the power and preserved the equality in which they had begun without warning the psychic battle between the two individualities began afresh this time both the positive and negative causes were all in favor of the man the woman was alone and in bad spirits unsupported nothing at all was in her favor except the memory of the two victorious contests whereas the man though unaided as before by either lady arabella or ulanga was in full strength well rested and in flourishing circumstances it was not therefore to be wondered at that his native dominance of character had full opportunity of asserting itself he began his preliminary stare with a conscious sense of power and as it appeared to have immediate effect on the girl he felt an ever-growing conviction of ultimate victory after a little lilla's resolution began to flag she felt that the contest was unequal that she was unable to put forth her best efforts as she was an unselfish person she could not fight so well in her own battle as in that of someone whom she loved and to whom she was devoted edgar saw the relaxing of the muscles of face and brow and the almost collapse of the heavy eyelids which seemed tumbling downward in sleep lilla made gallant efforts to brace her dwindling powers but for a time unsuccessfully at length there came an interruption which seemed like a powerful stimulant through the wide window she saw lady arabella enter the plain gateway of the farm and advanced towards the hall door she was clad as usual in tight-fitting white which accentuated her thin sinuous figure the sight did for lilla what no voluntary effort could have done her eyes flashed and in an instant she felt as though a new life had suddenly developed within her lady arabella's entry in her usual unconcerned haughty supercilious way heightened the effect so that when the two stood close to each other battle was joined mr caswell too took new courage from her coming and all his masterfulness and power came back to him his looks intensified had more obvious effect than had been noticeable that day lilla seemed at last overcome by his dominance her face became red and pale violently red and ghastly pale by rapid turns her strength seemed gone her knees collapsed and she was actually sinking on the floor when to her surprise and joy mimi came into the room running hurriedly and breathing heavily lilla rushed to her and the two clasped hands with that a new sense of power greater than lilla had ever seen in her seemed to quicken her cousin her hand swept the air in front of edgar caswell seeming to drive him backward more and more by each movement till at last he seemed to be actually hurled through the door which mimi's entrance had left open and fell at full length on the gravel path without then came the final and complete collapse of lilla who without a sound sank down on the floor End of chapter twenty five this recording is in the public domain Chapter twenty six of the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter twenty six Face to Face Mimi was greatly distressed when she saw her cousin lying prone. She had a few times in her life seen Lilla on the verge of fainting, but never senseless, and now she was frightened. She threw herself on her knees beside Lilla 
and tried by rubbing her hands and other measures commonly known to restore her but all her efforts were unavailing lilla still lay white and senseless in fact each moment she looked worse her breast that had been heaving with the stress became still and the pallor of her face grew like marble at these succeeding changes mimi's fright grew till it altogether mastered her she succeeded in controlling herself only to the extent that she did not scream lady arabella had followed caswell when he had recovered sufficiently to get up and walk though stumblingly in the direction of castra regis when mimi was quite alone with lilla and the need for effort had ceased she felt weak and trembled in her own mind she attributed it to a sudden change in the weather it was momentarily becoming apparent that a storm was coming on she raised lilla's head and laid it on her warm young breast but all in vain the cold of the white features thrilled through her and she utterly collapsed when it was borne in on her that lilla had passed away the dusk gradually deepened and the shades of evening closed in but mimi did not seem to notice or to care she sat on the floor with her arms round the body of the girl whom she loved darker and blacker grew the sky as the coming storm and the closing night joined forces still she sat on alone tearless unable to think mimi did not know how long she sat there though it seemed to her that ages had passed it could not have been more than half an hour she suddenly came to herself and was surprised to find that her grandfather had not returned for a while she lay quiet thinking of the immediate past lilla's hand was still in hers and to her surprise it was still warm somehow this helped her consciousness and without any special act of will she stood up she lit a lamp and looked at her cousin there was no doubt that lilla was dead but when the lamplight fell on her eyes they seemed to look at mimi with intent with meaning in this state of dark isolation a new resolution came to her, and grew and grew until it became a fixed, definite purpose. She would face Caswell and call him to account for his murder of Lilla. That was what she called it to herself. She would also take steps, she knew not what or how, to avenge the part taken by Lady Arabella. In this frame of mind she lit all the lamps in the room— got water and linen from her room, and set about the decent ordering of Lilla's body. This took some time, but when it was finished she put on her hat and cloak, put out the lights, and set out quietly for Castra Regis. As Mimi drew near the castle, she saw no lights except those in and around the tower room. The lights showed her that Mr. Caswell was there, so she entered by the hall door, which as usual was open and felt her way in the darkness up the staircase to the lobby of the room. The door was ajar, and the light from within showed brilliantly through the opening. She saw Edgar Caswell walking restlessly to and fro in the room, with his hands clasped behind his back. She opened the door without knocking, and walked right into the room. As she entered, he ceased walking, and stared at her in surprise. She made no remark, no comment but continued the fixed look which he had seen on her entrance. For a time silence reigned, and the two stood looking fixedly at each other. Mimi was the first to speak. "'You murderer! Lilla is dead!' "'Dead? Good God! When did she die?' "'She died this afternoon, just after you left her.' "'Are you sure?' "'Yes!' and so are you, or you ought to be. You killed her. I killed her. Be careful what you say. As God sees us, it is true, and you know it. You came to Mercy Farm on purpose to break her, if you could, and the accomplice of your guilt, Lady Arabella March, came for the same purpose. Be careful, woman, he said hotly. Do not use such names in that way, or you shall suffer for it. I am suffering for it, have suffered for it, shall suffer for it, not for speaking the truth as I have done, but because you two, with devilish malignity, did my darling to death. It is you and your accomplice 
who have to dread punishment, not I. Take care, he said again. Oh, I am not afraid of you or your accomplice, she answered spiritedly. I am content to stand by every word I have said, every act I have done. Moreover, I believe in God's justice. I fear not the grinding of his mills. If necessary, I shall set the wheels in motion upon myself. But you don't care for God or believe in him. Your God is your great kite, which cows the birds of a whole district. But be sure that his hand, when it rises, always falls at the appointed time. It may be that your name is being called, even at this very moment, at the great assize. Repent while there is still time. Happy you, if you may be allowed to enter those mighty halls, in the company of the pure-souled angel, whose voice has only to whisper one word of justice, and you disappear forever into everlasting torment. The sudden death of Lilla caused consternation among Mimi's friends and well-wishers. Such a tragedy was totally unexpected, as Adam and Sir Nathaniel had been expecting the white worm's vengeance to fall upon themselves. Adam, leaving his wife free to follow her own desires with regard to Lilla and her grandfather, busied himself with filling the well-hole with the fine sand prepared for the purpose. Taking care to have lowered at stated intervals quantities of the store of dynamite, so as to be ready for the final explosion. He had under his immediate supervision a corps of workmen, and was assisted by Sir Nathaniel, who had come over for the purpose, and all were now staying at Lesser Hill. Mr. Sultan, too, showed much interest in the job, and was constantly coming in and out, nothing escaping his observation. Since her marriage to Adam and their coming to stay at Doom Tower, Mimi had been fettered by fear of the horrible monster at Diana's Grove. But now she dreaded it no longer. She accepted the fact of its assuming at will the form of Lady Arabella. She had still to tax and upbraid her for her part in the unhappiness which had been wrought on Lilla, and for her share in causing her death. One evening, when Mimi entered her own room, she went to the window and threw an eager look round the whole circle of sight. A single glance satisfied her that the white worm in propria persona was not visible. So she sat down in the window-seat, and enjoyed the pleasure of a full view, from which she had been so long cut off. The maid who waited on her had told her that Mr. Sultan had not yet returned home, so she felt free to enjoy the luxury of peace and quiet. As she looked out of the window, she saw something thin and white move along the avenue. She thought she recognized the figure of Lady Arabella, and instinctively drew back behind the curtain. When she had ascertained, by peeping out several times, that the lady had not seen her, she watched more carefully all her instinctive hatred flooding back at the sight of her. Lady Arabella was moving swiftly and stealthily, looking back and around her at intervals, as if she feared to be followed. This gave Mimi an idea that she was up to no good, so she determined to seize the occasion for watching her in more detail. Hastily putting on a dark cloak and hat, she ran downstairs and out into the avenue. Lady Arabella had moved, but the sheen of her white dress was still to be seen among the young oaks around the gateway. Keeping in shadow, Mimi followed, taking care not to come so close as to awake the other's suspicion, and watched her quarry pass along the road in the direction of Castra Regis. She followed on steadily through the gloom of the trees, depending on the glint of the white dress to keep her right. The wood began to thicken, and presently, when the road widened and the trees grew farther back, she lost sight of any indication of her whereabouts. Under the present conditions it was impossible for her to do any more, so, after waiting for a while, still hidden in the shadow, to see if she could catch another glimpse of the white frock, she determined to go on slowly towards Castra Regis, and trust to the chapter of accidents to pick up the trail again. She went on slowly, taking advantage of every obstacle and shadow to keep herself concealed. At last she entered on the grounds of the castle, at a spot from which the windows of the turret were dimly visible, without having seen again any sign of Lady Arabella. 
Meanwhile, during most of the time that Mimi Sultan had been moving warily along in the gloom, she was in reality being followed by Lady Arabella, who had caught sight of her leaving the house, and had never again lost touch with her. It was a case of the hunter being hunted. For a time Mimi's many turnings, with the natural obstacles that were perpetually intervening, caused Lady Arabella some trouble. But when she was close to Castor Regis, there was no more possibility of concealment, and the strange double following went swiftly on. When she saw Mimi close to the hall door of Castor Regis, and ascending the steps, she followed. When Mimi entered the dark hall and felt her way up the staircase, still, as she believed, following Lady Arabella, the latter kept on her way. When they reached the lobby of the turret rooms, Mimi believed that the object of her search was ahead of her. Edgar Caswell sat in the gloom of the great room, occasionally stirred to curiosity when the drifting clouds allowed a little light to fall from the storm-swept sky. But nothing really interested him now, since he had heard of Lilla's death. The gloom of his remorse, emphasized by Mimi's upbraiding, had made more hopeless his cruel, selfish, saturnine nature. He heard no sound, for his normal faculties seemed benumbed. Mimi, when she came to the door, which stood ajar, gave a light tap. So light was it that it did not reach Caswell's ears. Then, taking her courage in both hands, she boldly pushed the door and entered. As she did so, her heart sank, for now she was face to face with a difficulty which had not, in her state of mental perturbation, occurred to her. End of chapter 26 this recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter 27 On the Turret Roof The storm which was coming was already making itself manifest, not only in the wide scope of nature, but in the hearts and natures of human beings. Electrical disturbance in the sky and the air is reproduced in animals of all kinds, and particularly in the highest type of them all, the most receptive, the most electrical. So it was with Edgar Caswell, despite his selfish nature and coldness of blood. So it was with Mimi Sultan, despite her unselfish, unchanging devotion for those she loved. So it was even with Lady Arabella, who, under the instincts of a primeval serpent, carried the ever-varying wishes and customs of womanhood, which is always old and always new. Edgar, after he had turned his eyes on Mimi, resumed his apathetic position and sullen silence. Mimi quietly took a seat a little way apart, whence she could look on the progress of the coming storm and study its appearance throughout the whole visible circle of the neighborhood. She was in brighter and better spirits than she had been for many days past. Lady Arabella tried to efface herself behind the now open door. Without, the clouds grew thicker and blacker as the storm center came closer. As yet the forces, from whose linking the lightning springs, were held apart, and the silence of nature proclaimed the calm before the storm. Caswell felt the effect of the gathering electric force. A sort of wild exhilaration grew upon him, such as he had sometimes felt just before the breaking of a tropical storm. As he became conscious of this, he raised his head and caught sight of Mimi. He was in the grip of an emotion greater than himself. In the mood in which he was, he felt the need upon him of doing some desperate deed. He was now absolutely reckless, and as Mimi was associated with him in the memory which drove him on, he wished that she, too, should be engaged in this enterprise. He had no knowledge of the proximity of Lady Arabella, and thought that he was far removed from all he knew and whose interests he shared, alone with the wild elements, which were being lashed to fury, and with the woman who had struggled with him and vanquished him and on whom he would shower the full measure of his hate. The fact was that Edgar Caswell was, if not mad, close to the borderline. Madness in its first stage, monomania, is a lack of proportion. 
So long as this is general, it is not always noticeable, for the uninspired onlooker is without the necessary means of comparison. But in monomania, the errant faculty protrudes itself in a way that may not be denied. It puts aside, obscures, or takes the place of something else, just as the head of a pin placed before the center of the iris will block out the whole scope of vision. The most usual form of monomania has commonly the same beginning as that from which Edgar Caswell suffered, an over-large idea of self-importance. Alienists who study the matter exactly probably know more of human vanity and its effects than do ordinary men. Caswell's mental disturbance was not hard to identify. Every asylum is full of such cases, men and women who, naturally selfish and egotistical, so appraise to themselves their own importance that every other circumstance in life becomes subservient to it. The disease supplies in itself the material for self-magnification. When the decadence attacks, a nature naturally proud and selfish and vain, and lacking both the aptitude and habit of self-restraint, the development of the disease is more swift, and ranges to farther limits. It is such persons who become imbued with the idea that they have the attributes of the Almighty, even that they themselves are the Almighty. Mimi had a suspicion, or rather perhaps an intuition, of the true state of things when she heard him speak, and at the same time noticed the abnormal flush on his face and his rolling eyes. There was a certain want of fixedness of purpose, which she had certainly not noticed before, a quick spasmodic utterance which belongs rather to the insane than to those of intellectual equilibrium. She was a little frightened, not only by his thoughts, but by his staccato way of expressing them. Caswell moved to the door leading to the turret stair by which the roof was reached, and spoke in a peremptory way, whose tone alone made her feel defiant. "'Come, I want you.' She instinctively drew back. She was not accustomed to such words, more especially to such a tone. Her answer was indicative of a new contest. "'Why should I go? What for?' He did not at once reply, another indication of his overwhelming egotism. She repeated her questions, habit reasserted itself, and he spoke without thinking the words which were in his heart. "'I want you, if you will be so good, to come with me to the turret roof. I am much interested in certain experiments with the kite, which would be, if not a pleasure, at least a novel experience to you. You would see something not easily seen otherwise.' "'I will come.' she answered simply. Edgar moved in the direction of the stair. She followed close behind him. She did not like to be left alone at such a height, in such a place, in the darkness, with a storm about to break. Of himself she had no fear. All that had been seemed to have passed away, with her two victories over him in the struggle of wills. Moreover, the more recent apprehension, that of his madness, had also ceased. In the conversation of the last few minutes he seemed so rational, so clear, so unaggressive, that she no longer saw reason for doubt. So satisfied was she that even when he put out a hand to guide her to the steep narrow stairway, she took it without thought in the most conventional way. Lady Arabella, crouching in the lobby behind the door, heard every word that had been said, and formed her own opinion of it. It seemed evident to her that there had been some reproachment between the two who had so lately been hostile to each other, and that made her furiously angry. Mimi was interfering with her plans. She had been certain of her capture of Edgar Caswell, and she could not tolerate even the lightest and most contemptuous fancy on his part, which might divert him from the main issue. When she became aware that he wished Mimi to come with him to the roof, and that she had acquiesced, her rage got beyond bounds. She became oblivious to any danger there might be in a visit to such an exposed place at such a time, and to all lesser considerations, and made up her mind to forestall them. She stealthily and noiselessly crept through the wicket, and ascending the stair, stepped out on the roof. It was bitterly cold, for the fierce gusts of the storm which swept round the turret drove in through every unimpeded way. 
whistling at the sharp corners and singing round the trembling flagstaff. The kite-string and the wire which controlled the runners made a concourse of weird sounds, which somehow, perhaps from the violence which surrounded them, acting on their length, resolved themselves into some kind of harmony, a fitting accompaniment to the tragedy which seemed about to begin. Mimi's heart beat heavily. Just before leaving the turret chamber she had a shock which she could not shake off. The lights of the room had momentarily revealed to her, as they passed out, Edgar's face, concentrated as it was whenever he intended to use his mesmeric power. Now the black eyebrows made a thick line across his face, under which his eyes shone and glittered ominously. Mimi recognized the danger, and assumed the defiant attitude that had twice already served her so well. She had a fear that the circumstances in the place were against her, and she wanted to be forearmed. The sky was now somewhat lighter than it had been. Either there was lightning afar off, whose reflections were carried by the rolling clouds, or else the gathered force, though not yet breaking into lightning, had an incipient power of light. It seemed to affect both the man and the woman. Edgar seemed altogether under its influence. His spirits were boisterous, his mind exalted. He was now at his worst, madder than he had been earlier in the night. Mimi, trying to keep as far from him as possible, moved across the stone floor of the turret roof, and found a niche which concealed her. It was not far from Lady Arabella's place of hiding. Edgar, left thus alone on the centre of the turret roof, found himself altogether his own master in a way which tended to increase his madness. He knew that Mimi was close at hand, though he had lost sight of her. He spoke loudly, and the sound of his own voice, though it was carried from him on the sweeping wind as fast as the words were spoken, seemed to exalt him still more. Even the raging of the elements round him appeared to add to his exultation. To him it seemed that these manifestations were obedient to his own will. He had reached the sublime of his madness. He was now in his own mind actually the Almighty, and whatever might happen would be the direct carrying out of his own commands. As he could not see Mimi, nor fix whereabout she was, he shouted loudly, "'Come to me. You shall see now what you are despising, what you are warring against. All that you see is mine, the darkness as well as the light. I tell you that I am greater than any other who is, or was, or shall be.' When the master of evil took Christ up on a high place, and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, he was doing what he thought no other could do. He was wrong. He forgot me. I shall send you light up to the very ramparts of heaven, a light so great that it shall dissipate those black clouds that are rushing up and piling around us. Look, look, at the very touch of my hand, that light springs into being and mounts up and up and up. He made his way whilst he was speaking to the corner of the turret whence flew the giant kite, and from which the runners ascended. Mimi looked on, appalled and afraid to speak lest she should precipitate more calamity. Within the niche Lady Arabella cowered in a paroxysm of fear. Edgar took up a small wooden box, through a hole in which the wire of the runner ran. This evidently set some machinery in motion— for a sound as of whirring came. From one side of the box floated what looked like a piece of stiff ribbon, which snapped and crackled as the wind took it. For a few seconds Mimi saw it as it rushed along the sagging line of the kite. When close to it there was a loud crack, and a sudden light appeared to issue from every chink in the box. Then a quick flame flashed along the snapping ribbon, which glowed with an intense light, a light so great that the whole of the countryside around stood out against the background of black driving clouds. For a few seconds the light remained, then suddenly disappeared in the blackness around. It was simply a magnesium light, which had been fired by the mechanism within the box and carried up to the kite. Edgar was in a state of tumultuous excitement, shouting and yelling at the top of his voice and dancing about like a lunatic. This was more than Lady Arabella's curious dual nature could stand. The ghoulish element in her rose triumphant, 
and she abandoned all idea of marriage with Edgar Caswell, gloating fiendishly over the thought of revenge. She must lure him to the white worm's hole, but how? She glanced around and quickly made up her mind. The man's whole thoughts were absorbed by his wonderful kite, which he was showing off, in order to fascinate her imaginary rival, Mimi. On the instant she glided through the darkness to the wheel whereon the string of the kite was wound, with deft fingers she unshipped this, took it with her, reeling out the wire as she went, thus keeping in a way in touch with the kite. Then she glided swiftly to the wicket, through which she passed, locking the gate behind her as she went. Down the turret stair she ran quickly, letting the wire run from the wheel, which she carried carefully, and passing out of the hall door, hurried down the avenue with all her speed. She soon reached her own gate, ran down the avenue, and with her key opened the iron door leading to the well-hole. She felt well satisfied with herself. All her plans were maturing, or had already matured. The master of Castra Regis was within her grasp. The woman whose interference she had feared, Lilla Watford, was dead. Truly all was well, and she felt that she might pause a while and rest. She tore off her clothes with feverish fingers, and in full enjoyment of her natural freedom, stretched her slim figure in animal delight. Then she lay down on the sofa to await her victim. Edgar Caswell's life-blood would more than satisfy her for some time to come. End of chapter 27 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28 of The Lair of the White Worm Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter 28 The Breaking of the Storm when Lady Arabella had crept away in her usual noiseless fashion, the two others remained for a while in their places on the turret roof, Caswell because he had nothing to say, Mimi because she had much to say and wished to put her thoughts in order. For quite a while, which seemed interminable, silence reigned between them. At last Mimi made a beginning. She had made up her mind how to act. "'Mr. Caswell,' she said loudly, so as to make sure of being heard through the blustering of the wind and the perpetual cracking of the electricity. Caswell said something in reply, but his words were carried away on the storm. However, one of her objects was effected. She knew now exactly whereabout on the roof he was, so she moved close to the spot before she spoke again, raising her voice almost to a shout. "'The wicket is shut. Please to open it. I can't get out.' As she spoke, she was quietly fingering a revolver which Adam had given to her in case of emergency, and which now lay in her breast. She felt that she was caged like a rat in a trap, but did not mean to be taken at a disadvantage, whatever happened. Caswell also felt trapped, and all the brute in him rose to the emergency. In a voice which was raucous and brutal, much like that which is heard when a wife is being beaten by her husband in a slum, he hissed out, his syllables cutting through the roaring of the storm. "'You came of your own accord, without permission or even asking it. Now you can stay or go as you choose, but you must manage it for yourself. I'll have nothing to do with it.' Her answer was spoken with dangerous suavity. "'I am going. Blame yourself if you do not like the time and manner of it. I dare say Adam, my husband, will have a word to say to you about it.' let him say and be damned to him and to you too i'll show you a light you shan't be able to say that you could not see what you were doing as he spoke he was lighting another piece of the magnesium ribbon which made a blinding glare in which everything was plainly discernible down to the smallest detail this exactly suited mimi she took accurate note of the wicket and its fastening before the glare had died away she took her revolver out and fired into the lock, which was shivered on the instant, the pieces flying round in all directions, but happily without causing hurt to any one. Then she pushed the wicket open and ran down the narrow stair, and so to the hall door. Opening this also, she ran down the avenue, never lessening her speed, till she stood outside the door of Lesser Hill. 
the door was open at once on her ringing. "'Is Mr. Adam Salton in?' she asked. "'He has just come in a few minutes ago. He has gone up to the study,' replied a servant. She ran upstairs at once and joined him. He seemed relieved when he saw her, but scrutinized her face keenly. He saw that she had been in some concern, so led her over to the sofa in the window and sat down beside her. "'Now, dear, tell me all about it,' he said. She rushed breathlessly through all the details of her adventure on the turret roof. Adam listened attentively, helping her all he could, and not embarrassing her by any questioning. His thoughtful silence was a great help to her, for it allowed her to collect and organize her thoughts. "'I must go to Caswell tomorrow to hear what he has to say on the subject.' "'But, dear, for my sake, don't have any quarrel with Mr. Caswell. I have had too much trial and pain lately to wish it increased by any anxiety regarding you.' "'You shall not, dear, if I can help it, please God,' he said solemnly, and he kissed her. Then, in order to keep her interested so that she might forget the fears and anxieties that had disturbed her, he began to talk over the details of her adventure, making shrewd comments which attracted and held her attention. Presently, inter alia, he said, "'That's a dangerous game Caswell is up to. It seems to me that that young man, though he doesn't appear to know it, is riding for a fall.' "'How, dear? I don't understand.' "'Kite-flying on a night like this from a place like the Tower of Castor Regis is, to say the least of it, dangerous. It is not merely courting death or other accident from lightning, but it is bringing the lightning into where he lives. Every cloud that is blowing up there, and they all make for the highest point, is bound to develop into a flash of lightning. That kite is up in the air and is bound to attract the lightning. Its cord makes a road for it on which to travel to earth.' When it does come, it will strike the top of the tower with a weight a hundred times greater than a whole park of artillery, and will knock Castor Regis into pieces. Where it will go after that no one can tell. If there should be any metal by which it can travel, such will not only point the road, but be the road itself. Would it be dangerous to be out in the open air when such a thing is taking place? she asked. No, little woman. It would be the safest possible place, so long as one was not in the line of the electric current. Then do let us go outside. I don't want to run into any foolish danger, or far more to ask you to do so. But surely if the open is safest, that is the place for us. Without another word, she put on again the cloak she had thrown off, and a small tight-fitting cap. Adam, too, put on his cap, and after seeing that his revolver was all right, gave her his hand, and they left the house together. "'I think the best we can do will be to go around all the places which are mixed up in the affair.' "'All right, dear, I am ready. But if you don't mind, we might go first to Mercy. I am anxious about Grandfather, and we might see that, as yet, at all events, nothing has happened there.' So they went on the high-hung road along the top of the brow. The wind here was of great force, and made a strange booming noise as it swept high overhead, though not the sound of cracking and tearing as it passed through the woods of high slender trees which grew on either side of the road. Mimi could hardly keep her feet. She was not afraid, but the force to which she was opposed gave her a good excuse to hold on to her husband extra tight. At Mercy there was no one up, at least all the lights were out but to Mimi, accustomed to the nightly routine of the house, there were manifest signs that all was well, except in the little room on the first floor, where the blinds were down. Mimi could not bear to look at that, to think of it. Adam understood her pain, for he had been keenly interested in poor Lilla. He bent over and kissed her, and then took her hand and held it hard. Thus they passed on together, returning to the high road towards Castra Regis. At the gate of Castor Regis they were extra careful. When drawing near, Adam stumbled upon the wire that Lady Arabella had left trailing on the ground. Adam drew his breath at this, and spoke in a low, earnest whisper. "'I don't want to frighten you, Mimi, dear. But wherever that wire is, there is danger.' "'Danger? How?' "'That is the track where the lightning will go. At any moment, even now whilst we are speaking and searching, 
a fearful force may be loosed upon us. Run on, dear. You know the way to where the avenue joins the high road. If you see any sign of the wire, keep away from it, for God's sake. I shall join you at the gateway. Are you going to follow that wire alone? Yes, dear. One is sufficient for that work. I shall not lose a moment till I am with you. Adam, when I came with you into the open, my main wish was that we should be together if anything serious happened. You wouldn't deny me that right, would you, dear? No, dear, not that or any right. Thank God that my wife has such a wish. Come, we will go together. We are in the hands of God. If he wishes, we shall be together at the end, whenever or wherever that may be. They picked up the trail of the wire on the steps, and followed it down the avenue, taking care not to touch it with their feet. It was easy enough to follow, for the wire, if not bright, was self-colored and showed clearly. They followed it out of the gateway and into the avenue of Diana's Grove. Here a new gravity clouded Adam's face, though Mimi saw no cause for fresh concern. This was easily enough explained. Adam knew of the explosive works in progress regarding the well-hole, but the matter had been kept from his wife. As they stood near the house, Adam asked Mimi to return to the road, ostensibly to watch the course of the wire, telling her that there might be a branch wire leading somewhere else. She was to search the undergrowth, and if she found it, was to warn him by the Australian native, Cooee! Whilst they were standing together, there came a blinding flash of lightning, which lit up for several seconds the whole area of earth and sky. It was only the first note of the celestial prelude, for it was followed in quick succession by numerous flashes, whilst the crash and roll of thunder seemed continuous. Adam, appalled, drew his wife to him and held her close. As far as he could estimate by the interval between lightning and thunderclap, the heart of the storm was still some distance off, so he felt no present concern for their safety. Still, it was apparent that the course of the storm was moving swiftly in their direction. The lightning flashes came faster and faster and closer together. The thunder roll was almost continuous, not stopping for a moment, a new crash beginning before the old one had ceased. Adam kept looking up in the direction where the kite strained and struggled at its detaining cord, but, of course, the dull evening light prevented any distinct scrutiny. At length there came a flash so appallingly bright that in its glare nature seemed to be standing still. So long did it last that there was time to distinguish its configuration. It seemed like a mighty tree inverted, pendant from the sky. The whole country around within the angle of vision was lit up till it seemed to glow. Then a broad ribbon of fire seemed to drop on to the castle of Castra Regis, just as the thunder crashed. By the glare Adam could see the tower shake and tremble, and finally fall to pieces like a house of cards. The passing of the lightning left the sky again dark, but a blue flame fell downward from the tower, and with inconceivable rapidity, running along the ground in the direction of Diana's grove, reached the dark silent house, which in the instant burst into flame at a hundred different points. At the same moment there rose from the house a rending, crashing sound of woodwork, broken or thrown about, mixed with a quick scream so appalling that Adam, stout of heart as he undoubtedly was, felt his blood turn into ice. Instinctively, despite the danger and their consciousness of it, husband and wife took hands and listened, trembling. Something was going on close to them, mysterious, terrible, deadly. The shrieks continued, though less sharp in sound, as though muffled. In the midst of them was a terrific explosion, seemingly from deep in the earth. The flames from Castra Regis and from Diana's Grove made all around almost as light as day, and now that the lightning had ceased to flash, their eyes, unblinded, were able to judge both perspective and detail. The heat of the burning house caused the iron doors to warp and collapse. Seemingly of their own accord they fell open, and exposed the interior. The sultans could now look through to the room beyond, where the well-hole yawned, a deep, narrow, circular chasm. From this the agonized shrieks were rising, growing ever more terrible with each second that passed. But it was not only the heart-rending sound that almost paralyzed poor Mimi with terror. 
what she saw was sufficient to fill her with evil dreams for the remainder of her life. The whole place looked as if a sea of blood had been beating against it. Each of the explosions from below had thrown out from the well-hole, as it had been the mouth of a cannon, a mass of fine sand mixed with blood, and a horrible repulsive slime, in which were great red masses of rent and torn flesh and fat. As the explosions kept on, more and more of this repulsive mass was shot up, the great bulk of it falling back again. Many of the awful fragments were of something which had lately been alive. They quivered and trembled and writhed as though they were still in torment, a supposition to which the unending scream gave a horrible credence. At moments more mountainous mass of flesh surged up through the narrow orifice, as though forced by a measureless power through an opening infinitely smaller than itself. Some of these fragments were partially covered with white skin as of a human being, and others, the largest and most numerous, with scaled skin as of a gigantic lizard or serpent. Once, in a sort of lull or pause, the seething contents of the whole rose, after the manner of a bubbling spring, and Adam saw part of the thin form of Lady Arabella, forced up to the top amid a mass of blood and slime, and what looked as if it had been the entrails of a monster torn into shreds. Several times some masses of enormous bulk were forced up through the well-hole, with inconceivable violence, and suddenly expanding as they came into larger space, disclosed sections of the white worm which Adam and Sir Nathaniel had been looking over the trees, with its enormous eyes of emerald green, flickering like great lamps in a gale. At last the explosive power, which was not yet exhausted, evidently reached the main store of dynamite, which had been lowered into the wormhole. The result was appalling. The ground for far around quivered and opened in long, deep chasms, whose edges shook and fell in, throwing up clouds of sand, which fell back and hissed amongst the rising water. The heavily built house shook to its foundations. Great stones were thrown up as from a volcano. Some of them, great masses of hard stone, squared and grooved with implements wrought by human hands, breaking up and splintering in mid-air as though riven by some infernal power. Trees near the house, and therefore presumably in some way above the hole, which sent up clouds of dust and steam and fine sand mingled, and which carried an appalling stench which sickened the spectators, were torn up by the roots and hurled into the air. By now flames were bursting violently from all over the ruins, so dangerously that Adam caught up his wife in his arms and ran with her from the proximity of the flames. Then, almost as quickly as it had begun, the whole cataclysm ceased, though a deep-down rumbling continued intermittently for some time. Then silence brooded over all, silence so complete that it seemed in itself a sentient thing silence which seemed like incarnate darkness and conveyed the same idea to all who came within its radius to the young people who had suffered the long horror of that awful night it brought relief relief from the presence or the fear of all that was horrible relief which seemed perfected when the red rays of sunrise shot up over the far eastern sea bringing a promise of a new order of things with the coming day his bed saw little of Adam Salton for the remainder of that night. He and Mimi walked hand in hand in the brightening dawn round by the brow to Castra Regis and on to Lesser Hill. They did so deliberately, in an attempt to think as little as possible of the terrible experiences of the night. The morning was bright and cheerful as a morning sometimes is after a devastating storm. The clouds, of which there were plenty in evidence, brought no lingering idea of gloom. All nature was bright and joyous, being in striking contrast to the scenes of wreck and devastation, the effects of obliterating fire and lasting ruin. The only evidence of the once stately pile of Castra Regis and its inhabitants was a shapeless huddle of shattered architecture dimly seen as the keen breeze swept aside the cloud of acrid smoke which marked the site of the once lordly castle. As for Diana's Grove, they looked in vain for a sign which had a suggestion of permanence. 
the oak-trees of the grove were still to be seen, some of them emerging from a haze of smoke, the great trunks solid and erect as ever, but the larger branches broken and twisted and rent, with bark stripped and chipped, and the smaller branches broken and dishevelled, looking from the constant stress and threshing of the storm. Of the house as such there was, even at the short distance from which they looked, no trace. Adam resolutely turned his back on the devastation and hurried on. Mimi was not only upset and shocked in many ways, but she was physically dog-tired, and falling asleep on her feet. Adam took her to her room and made her undress and get into bed, taking care that the room was well lighted both by sunshine and the lamps. The only obstruction was from a silk curtain drawn across the window to keep out the glare. He sat beside her, holding her hand, well knowing that the comfort of his presence was the best restorative for her. He stayed with her till sleep had overmastered her wearied body. Then he went softly away. He found his uncle and Sir Nathaniel in the study, having an early cup of tea, amplified to the dimensions of a possible breakfast. Adam explained that he had not told his wife that he was going over the horrible places again, lest it should frighten her, for the rest and sleep in ignorance would help her and make a gap of peacefulness between the horrors. Sir Nathaniel agreed. "'We know, my boy,' he said, "'that the unfortunate Lady Arabella is dead, and that the foul carcass of the worm had been torn to pieces. Pray God that its evil soul will never more escape.' from the nethermost hell. They visited Diana's Grove first, not only because it was nearer, but also because it was the place where most description was required, and Adam felt that he could tell his story best on the spot. The absolute destruction of the place and everything in it, seen in the broad daylight, was almost inconceivable. To Sir Nathaniel it was as a story of horror full and complete, but to Adam it was, as it were, only on the fringes. He knew what was still to be seen when his friends had got over the knowledge of externals. As yet they had only seen the outside of the house, or rather, where the outside of the house once had been. The great horror lay within. However, age, and the experience of age, counts. A strange, almost elemental change in the aspect had taken place in the time which had elapsed since the dawn. It would almost seem as if nature herself had tried to obliterate the evil signs of what had occurred. True, the utter ruin of the house was made even more manifest in the searching daylight, but the more appalling destruction which lay beneath was not visible. The rent-torn and dislocated stonework looked worse than before. The upheaved foundations, the piled-up fragments of masonry, the fissures in the torn earth, all were at the worst. The worm's hole was still evident, a round fissure seemingly leading down into the very bowels of the earth. But all the horrid mass of blood and slime, of torn, evil-smelling flesh, and the sickening remnants of violent death were gone. Either some of the later explosions had thrown up from the deep quantities of water which, though foul and corrupt itself, had still some cleansing power left, or else the writhing mass which stirred from far below, had helped to drag down and obliterate the items of horror. A grey dust, partly of fine sand, partly of the waste of the falling ruin, covered everything, and though ghastly itself, helped to mask something still worse. After a few minutes of watching, it became apparent to the three men that the turmoil far below had not yet ceased. At short irregular intervals, the hell-broth in the hole seemed as if boiling up. It rose and fell again and turned over, showing in fresh form much of the nauseous detail which had been visible earlier. The worst parts were the great masses of the flesh of the monstrous worm, in all its red and sickening aspect. Such fragments had been bad enough before, but now they were infinitely worse. Corruption comes with startling rapidity, to beings whose destruction has been due wholly or in part to lightning. The whole mass seemed to have become all at once corrupt. The whole surface of the fragments, once alive, was covered with insects, worms, and vermin of all kinds. The sight was horrible enough, 
but with the awful smell added, was simply unbearable. The worm's hole appeared to breathe forth death in its most repulsive forms. The friends, with one impulse, moved to the top of the brow, where a fresh breeze from the sea was blowing up. At the top of the brow, beneath them as they looked down, they saw a shining mass of white, which looked strangely out of place amongst such wreckage as they had been viewing. It appeared so strange that Adam suggested trying to find a way down, so that they might see it more closely. "'We need not go down. I know what it is,' Sir Nathaniel said. "'The explosions of last night have blown off the outside of the cliffs. That which we see is the vast bed of china clay through which the worm originally found its way down to its lair. I can catch the glint of the water of the deep quags far down below.' Well, her ladyship didn't deserve such a funeral, or such a monument. The horrors of the last few hours had played such havoc with Mimi's nerves that a change of scene was imperative, if a permanent breakdown was to be avoided. "'I think,' said old Mr. Sultan, "'it is quite time you young people departed for that honeymoon of yours.' There was a twinkle in his eyes as he spoke. Mimi's soft, shy glance at her stalwart husband was sufficient answer. End of chapter 28 End of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush In Marquette, Michigan, January 2007 This recording is in the public domain. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.